Amen. Picture with me for a moment a man who is on death row. He has been in the news famously for murdering several people in grotesque and awful ways. The man is obviously arrested, he is tried, he is convicted, and he is sentenced to death by the judge. And as this man awaits his execution, there is a report that this hardened criminal has been saved by the grace of God. And he has repented of his evil ways. He says he has asked God for forgiveness. And most shockingly to the public, he claims that God has indeed forgiven him. He has asked the families of the victims for forgiveness, both privately and publicly. And one of the main church, one of the, the leading voices of the church interviews this man, goes to speak with him to find out if his claims are true. And this leader exits that interview and shockingly tells the world he believes this man's confession is genuine. If that were true, the outcry from the public would be loud and it would be angry. How could God forgive such a man? See, we would look at someone like that and we would say they deserve hellfire, not heaven's gates. The world would look at this and they would say that is not justice, that is injustice. But what happens when people say that something like that is just too much for God to act in mercy? Is what we are doing is we are saying that my sin is just not as bad as that man's sin. We don't see our sin on the same plane as his. We are acting like we are better, better than the murderer. We think ourselves righteous, and we can even walk around being thankful that we are not that vile murderer. We're going to see a parable that Jesus tells that is strikingly similar to the modern-day equivalent that I have just set up for you. And I'm calling this the parable of the faithful tax collector. And we are transitioning from a long section uh, on the last days to a section on how to ensure you are counted among the faithful in the last days. So Jesus has been speaking, and apparently the Pharisees and and his enemies have overheard what he has said, and now he's going to turn his sights on them, and he is going to explain there is a way to enter and there is a way not to enter. And he sets up a strong contrast between two citizens, one who is respected and the other who is reviled. The respected one is seen in verses 9 through 12. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This is the respected one. and We'll look first of all at how this respected man was viewed by society. This 
man is named as a Pharisee. Now, I want to be clear. While Jesus uses a Pharisee, it is not limited to just Pharisees who fit this bill. There are many commoners who fit the same bill. They thought they were better than others. But the Pharisees were the ones who, consider, who were considered the ones to be emulated. They were the ones who were expected to be followed and imitated. They were respected. When someone had questions about spiritual things, they oftentimes went to the Pharisees. Now, they may have had the wrong answers, but they were the answers that everyone listened to. And so we see this respected man. Now, this parable is placed here likely because it involves prayer. But this parable is given to those who trusted in themselves. Now, that is a key phrase that we cannot miss. The recipients of this parable are represented best by the Pharisees. But anyone, including you and I, can place our trust in ourselves. Now, the word trust speaks of relying upon something or believing in something. And and the very definition of the word trust means to believe in something or someone to the extent of placing your reliance or trust or confidence in something. Now, notice the object of their faith is themselves. They're looking to themselves for salvation. Now, this this, this is common in our day. People do this without even realizing they're doing this. They, they look to themselves and they think that they have the answers or they look to those who are like them and they try to get as many people around themselves who think like them as possible and they say, hey, we've got more people in our camp. We're right. You're wrong. Let me be very clear, beloved. The minority is not wrong because they're minority, and the majority is not right because they're the majority. Truth has not changed. Because truth is based upon God, who does not change. And so when you see the world gathering against you and mounting their attack, don't feel you have to cave under the pressure. You must stand firm upon the word and the word alone. But see, these men are looking to themselves, putting their confidence in themselves and not in God. This shows their arrogance. And by the way, this is, this is totally opposed to the gospel of God's grace. Grace is the unearned favor of God. There is nothing you can do to earn it. There is nothing you can do to earn this favor. It is freely given to you. And many struggle with that concept. Just like these who would be looking at the criminal, thinking I'm better than that criminal, I deserve God's grace. That goes against the very definition of grace, an unearned gift. It comes from God as He seeks to give. And these who think that they are Righteous. They, they trusted in themselves thinking that they were righteous. And the word righteous here means to be in a right relationship with someone here speaking of God. They thought they were in right relationship to God because of who they were and what they did. 
Now, we stand here with the New Testament, and we understand the New Testament, we understand the gospel of grace, and, and we understand, I've just said, there's nothing that you and I can do to earn God's grace, and so there is nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves righteous before God. That is Christ's work, and our faith must be in Him, in Him alone. But these thought that they were righteous because of their own actions. In fact, they thought themselves faultless. And that's, that's the issue. The Pharisees thought themselves faultless. And yet they were constantly being challenged by Jesus. And this maddened them. Why are you picking on us, they would say. How dare you point the finger at us? Look at all of these sinners that you could pick on. Oh, and what even made them even more angry is when Jesus would go and eat with these sinners the Pharisees hated. Just drove them absolutely mad. Because Jesus loved the Pharisees. Do you catch that? He loved the Pharisees enough to speak truth to them. But they hated his teaching. Now, I will tell you that one way that you can know that you are in fellowship with God is when someone speaks to you and says, hey, there's an area in your life where I see you are out of alignment and you humbly submit. Now, you may not agree with everything they say, but you listen. One way to know that you are out of fellowship with God is when someone brings an attention, something to your attention and you say, put them up. And you get angry. And you don't listen. Beloved, when we do that, and we all do it, every one of us does it, when we do that, we are those who trust in themselves. That is how we know we are out of fellowship with God. Luke puts the truth here that these men thought they were righteous and yet they despised others. That word despise means to consider someone or something as having no value or being worthless. And there were a few classes of people that it was acceptable to hate. One were the Gentiles. The Jews regularly referred to the Gentiles as dogs and they didn't mean the cute little pet that we have at home. They meant the rotten, mangy, stinky mutts that were around the city who were pests. The dogs that people would kick and throw rocks at because they hated them so much. And they called the Gentiles dogs. The second class were the tax collectors. They hated the tax collectors. Now, we're going to look at several passages here that show us the hypocrisy of, their, of this kind of thinking. And let's be reminded of some passages that we've already covered in the book of Luke. We saw in Luke chapter 10, 29, that a lawyer wanted to justify himself about who was his neighbor. Because remember, he asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, oh, but hang on a second, who's my neighbor? Opens the door for Jesus to share a parable. Now, Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew he hated Samaritans. So what does he do? He has a priest and a rabbi pass by a man who's been beaten, bloodied. And by the way, they're being good Jews, according to the ceremonial law. But they're not, they're not honoring the heart of God in that action. But here comes a Samaritan who cares for the man as he should and truly loves his neighbor. And the man can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan loved his neighbor. He just says the one who had mercy on him. Shows his prejudice. 
Later in Luke, Jesus takes on the Pharisees head on in Luke 16, 15, where he tells them straight up, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. To think themselves right before God is one thing, but see, God knows the heart. And Jesus then delivers that boom, what is highly esteemed among among men, God hates. We see this in our culture all the time. Everywhere, from, uh, from the, the idea of social justice to who you can marry to, to what your gender is. We see all of that. But Jesus says what is esteemed among sinful fallen men, God hates. We are told in Proverbs chapter 30, uh, chapter 30 uh, verse 12, that there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. So we have to recognize that this is not talking about everybody else. (laughs) This is talking about us. And so we see people who think they are right. And unless we're right with God, we are not right. But see, you have to recognize that what we see in our world are people who think they're right. They honestly, deep down in their core, yes, their conscience is killing them, about what, how they're living, but they have to absolutely believe that what they are doing is right and what they approve of is right. Otherwise, why do it? Now, yes, their conscience is against them, but they've suppressed the con- their conscience to the point where they no longer listen to it, no longer care about it, and they now have convinced generations of young people that they are right to the point that our young people no longer have a conscience that's informed by any portion of the Word of God only secular humanism. See, they think they're right about justice. And when I say justice, I mean what you, see, you hear about social justice. They think they're right about gun control and science and gender and supernatural. And anyone who believes in the supernatural, they think is a fool. Because the supernatural goes against what they call science. See, they're convinced that they're right. But in the end, this truth does not change. God is their judge. You and I are not their judge. God is their judge. That doesn't mean we don't make judgments about our world. We do. But we don't condemn them. We leave that to the Lord. Our job is to go and make the truth known. We go make the truth known, and that is how God has set up the situation. Remember, as we go out and we make the truth known, remember what Paul says in Romans 14.10. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand at the judgment of Christ. Beloved, remember this. As you go, you are not the judge. And God hasn't given you some some special revelation that you know that now you can judge on his behalf. No. You just make the truth known. You make the truth known and you, you make judgments, but you allow God to be the judge. And our judgments are based upon God's word and nothing else. The passage that is most important to our study this morning is Matthew 5, 21 to 22, where Jesus says, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, this is a correction of their understanding. This is Jesus giving the real understanding of the law, that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. 
But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. What Jesus is doing here is he is equating the inward hatred of another image bearer of God to breaking the sixth commandment of you shall not murder. With that understanding now laid out, those who trusted in themselves, thought themselves righteous before God, and hated others, well, how can they be right before God if they're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment? One in which we would, would, I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus just says right here, you hate a brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. See, if we have an inward hatred of each other, we are not in right standing with God. So we may not even realize we have a problem until you find someone says the name of someone else and you find yourself bristling. Your heart rate quickens. You begin, your palms get sweaty and you just have this, how dare you bring that name up. That's the idea here. We have to recognize that harboring the hatred of others is the same in the eyes of God as taking a life. Because the idea behind hatred is you wish that person were gone. All of this sets up the parable. All of this is background. All of this is needed to be understood as we walk through these verses. And so Jesus explains that these two men go to the temple to pray. This is not a random trip. This is just not as they're passing through. This is the hour of prayer as Acts 3.1 tells us. There is a, this is formal worship. This is organized. They go up to the temple to pray. And this would be a time and an action that the people would be familiar with. And so you meet the people of the parable. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And what Jesus does is he sets the people up for a shock. The Pharisees thought themselves righteous. And by the way, everyone else thought the Pharisees were righteous too. They walked around in their robes, set apart, with their nose up, looking down their long nose at everybody else. And everyone else thought, I deserve to be looked down upon because I'm not that righteous. And if you were to look at someone who would have thought that, who would have been the ones who were thought of as ones who have it all together, in that culture everyone would have pointed to the Pharisees because they beat themselves to be more righteous than everyone else. But it wasn't a righteousness of God. It was their own self-righteousness. They were the religious leaders who were considered good and godly. Now, I want you to listen to what David Garland says because he gives a good explanation on what Jesus gives here and and the way he sets this up. Garland says, a Pharisee is chosen because they were well known for excelling others in their religious observances and for their exact interpretation of the law. They were pictured in rabbinic literature for being over the top and practicing their piety. The Pharisee serves as a picture postcard of those who imagine themselves to be righteous, but whose self-image is at odds with God's judgment. So everyone respects the Pharisees. And everyone's jaw drops when Jesus dares to confront them. But these are the people who are good. But then you have the other man, a tax collector. If the Pharisees were respected, everyone hated the tax collectors. It is not just because tax collectors took their money. I mean, they did, and they robbed, and they stole. They were thieves. 
but especially the tax collectors who were of Israel. They were hated. They were thought of as traitors because they worked for Rome. And any Israelite worth his salt would do anything and everything he could to release the shackles of Rome from Israel. But the tax collectors, an Israelite tax collector, by working for Rome was seen as tightening those shackles even more. And so the people hated the tax collectors. They were liars. They were thieves. They cheated people out of money. They were evil men who had no respect in the eyes of the people. If you were a tax collector, you had no upstanding reputation. No one would talk to you in public. They would leave you. In fact, they thought that you shouldn't even look them in the eye. And any Israelite who set up, as a, trade, set up a trade as a tax collector was thought to have forfeited their heritage of being Abraham's seed. If you're an Israelite and a tax collector, you don't go to heaven. That's what they were saying. So rather than sticking with the cultural norms, however, Jesus flips the script. Here's a Pharisee. He makes him the scoundrel. And the tax collector is the pious one. This would have shocked everyone and again further maddened the Pharisees. Jesus puts the Pharisees in the temple. He puts a Pharisee in the temple. He is standing and he is praying and he is not just praying. He's praying loud as he can. So that everyone who is around him within earshot hears how great he is. Not a humble man. A self-righteous man. He begins by thanking God. And now it sounds good. He's thanking God, but the prayer goes off the rails almost immediately. He thanks God that he is not like other men. You ever heard someone say something and it just... There's something wrong here. It's not right. I can't put my finger on it, but it's not right. When we were in Florida, I had a conversation with a man who uh, just started talking about, we started talking about religious things. He found out as a pastor, and so he wanted to talk about his understanding of Jesus. And he said, well, you know what Jesus said. And he said something. I can't remember the quote. I don't want to say something that's not true. But it was something that I have never heard attributed to Jesus in the Bibles anywhere. And I went, What? I couldn't put my finger on it. I just knew something was off. Turns out, he was a Jehovah's Witness. He was off. That's exactly what's happening here. As he begins his prayer, I thank you that I am not like other men. Red flags should begin to raise. What's going on here? I can't put my finger on it, but something's off. And he begins to pray, I thank you that I am not like other men. He thinks he's better than everybody else. He thinks that he has earned a more respectable position, and he thinks he's better than extortioners, the unjust, and the adulterers. Now, these are intentional acts that definitely bring harm. An extortioner is one who is destructively vicious. They sought to harm others intentionally so that it benefited only themselves. But if you continue on that kind of thinking, they take advantage of others who were guilty, and they were guilty of a crime, but they get away with it. That's the unjust. 
they get away with it. And then the adulterers, of course, we know those who are unfaithful to their spouse. If you've ever been a part of that, you know how hard and deep that hurt cuts. But here's the crazy irony. The Pharisees were guilty of every one of these offenses. If you look at Luke chapter 20, verse 47, Jesus says the, tells his disciples, Beware of the Pharisees who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. By devouring the widows' houses, what they were doing is they were taking houses from widows and selling it for their own gain. That's extortion. But then also they are unjust, as you see in Matthew 23, 4. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one finger. You have to do it, but I don't. That's hypocrisy, but it's also unjust. And they were adulterers. John 19.15. When uh, when Pilate asks the chief priests, what shall I do with Jesus? They cry, we have... He says, what shall I do with your king? Is what he asks. And they respond, we have no king but Caesar. No, they don't commit adultery against their spouse. They just commit adultery against God. Far worse. So the, faith, the Pharisees, they are guilty of all that this man thinks he is innocent of. But then he goes on, he says, even this tax collector. If there was anyone that he was better than, he knew it was this tax collector. Here's the irony of the whole matter. Both men are guilty of all the sins that are listed here, but only one knew it. Only one was aware of it. This is why Jesus explains in Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Here's what Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. It's the best it gets for them. Pharisee goes on to say he fasts twice a week. That's much more than normal. In fact, the only time that fasting was required was at the Day of Atonement. This man fasts twice a week. But I want you to notice that according to the New King James Version, this man uses the word I five times in 33 words. If you look in the Greek, it's five times in 23 words. What's that tell you about this man? all about me. Look at how great I am. Look at me. This is what Jesus opposed in Luke eleven forty two. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manners of herbs and pass by the justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. See, it would be easy for us to look at this man and just say, shame on him. Shame on him without taking any assessment of our own lives. But that is the very foundation of hypocrisy, and it is a very way in which you think you are better than others. So we should recognize that God pays much mind to our sin. He sees every bit of it. And he knows how to assess it. And he knows what to do about it. 
And he knows what to do about us when we remain unrepentant. And he knows how to offer us mercy when we do repent. So we've looked at the respected one. Now we see the reviled one. Jesus continues this parable by explaining that the one whom everyone hated, the tax collector. Jesus makes, shocks everyone to make this guy the humble, pious man. He won't even draw near to the temple. He stands afar off. He won't even look up to heaven. He keeps his head down. It's a reminder of Ezra 9.6 where Ezra is interceding for Israel because they intermarry with other nations. And Ezra says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. This tax collector knew his guilt. He sees the weight of his sin because he is actually the one in the right position with God. He's humbled himself. He can do nothing to reconcile himself to God, and he knows it, so he throws himself upon the mercy of God. It is in total contrast to the self-righteous Pharisee who is praying out loud. This man beats his breast. This is a public sign of humiliation. Men do not beat their breast in public. Women might dare to do so at a funeral. Men never would. And so here is a man caring not about what any other men think. Humble himself before God, crying out for mercy, seeing himself as God sees him, beating his breast, asking that God would be merciful to him, a sinner. This is a plea showing that this man knows that unless God is merciful to him, he will not be forgiven. Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Unless God provides atonement for you, you don't get it. You can't achieve atonement for yourself. You need God to apply it to you. Atonement comes only through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death, burial, resurrection. You don't atone for your sins because your sins are the ones who must be atoned for. You have broken relationship with the holy God. Someone else must come and atone for your sins. Someone must do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And that is Jesus. And this tax collector understands that. The well-known and important passage of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, remember, it is by grace... You have been saved through faith. And the implication there is in Christ. It is not of yourselves, Paul is explicitly to say. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What is that gift of God? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. No. When you look at the Greek, and, and Garland makes a good observation here, he says the contrast between the tax collector and the Pharisee is stark. The Pharisee is the righteous one, but the tax collector marks himself not as a sinner, but as the sinner. 
he sees himself as the worst of all sinners. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a sinner who's really not that bad and really God should save me? I haven't done all that much. I'm not like them over there. Or do you see yourself recognizing that one sin, one little white lie, offends the most holy God in such a way that it puts you on the same plane as a murderer, an adulterer? See, we tend to think of ourselves as self-righteous who need no repentance, but a sinner, when we righteously understand God and we righteously understand our position, we come to see that we need repentance more than a self-righteous man who doesn't think he's all that bad. And what you're seeing in the evangelical church right now are many people who don't see themselves that bad. And that's why they're joining in with the chorus of cries in the world. They, They just cannot understand a God who would offer grace to those who are worse than themselves. We'll think we're just fine. It's likely, though, that there are some who are here this morning that you've given no thought whatsoever to this very concept until right now. How you evaluate others. No, you probably don't walk around going, I'm better than you, better than you, better than you, better than you. You probably don't do that outwardly or intentionally. But what takes place here? What takes place here? When you lay your head on your pillow at night, what's your hope that if you don't wake up, you enter in heaven? It can't be your own righteousness. You have none. Your righteousness, God says, is as filthy rags. You must have the righteousness of Christ. So we come then to the rule of faith in verse 14. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says that the tax collector went home justified. The word justified means to cause someone to be in a right relationship with another by declaring them not guilty. That's key. You're declared not guilty. We are Not innocent. God does not declare you innocent. He declares you not guilty. There is a difference. You are not declared innocent because you are not innocent. You are a sinner through and through. So what is the difference? Well, God declares you not guilty because what happens is when you put your faith in Christ, God applies the righteousness of Christ on your accounts. It's not the transaction of your righteousness that Jesus, that God looks at. It's the transaction of Christ's righteousness that he is looking at. And so you are declared not guilty because Christ has paid the debt on your behalf. That's justification. Jesus explains this parable's conclusion saying that everyone who exalts himself, you will be humbled. To exalt yourself means to, to cause yourself to be high or lifted up. And to be humbled means to be disgraced or humiliated. The implication is embarrassment. I want you to recognize that either you will exalt yourself or you will humble yourself. There is no other option. 
You are either actively pursuing your own exaltation or pursuing your own disgrace compared to Christ. And Jesus says, the one that exalts himself, God will cast down. And the one who humbles himself, God will raise up. Now, I want you to recognize that the lesson that Jesus is giving has is, is, is been given before already. Luke 14, 11, whoever exalts himself will be humble. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Word for word, exactly the same. But also, on top of that, it's James 4, 6. God gives more grace. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is, this is not a foreign concept to us. But see, those who exalt themselves, either intensely through their own actions or, or by trying to get those in the world to lift them up, or, or, or they're propping up the message of the world so that they can kind of rise on the coattails, one day, God's going to destroy that. And they will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted by God. Now, I want, I want to be clear. That may not happen here on earth. And, and I, will, I will say your reward is in heaven. See, when we stand at the cross and we know Jesus took upon himself our sin, how can we walk away unmoved and unchanged? Not because they pounded nails into his hands or stabbed him in the side with a spear, but because he was God incarnate, perfect, holy, just, and he took upon himself our wrath of the wrath of God on our account. That when we put our trust in him, we are declared not guilty. How do you walk away from the cross knowing that unmoved? Beloved, we must humble ourselves. We have to come to the point where we see our sin. And it's not just the big sins that we're after now. It's anything that God is displeased by. We have to humble ourselves and seek to destroy that sin to mortify the flesh. So this, this parable teaches us that self-reliance for salvation is foolish. And no one, no one, not even the self-righteous Pharisees, could do enough to win God's approval. And that includes you and how rosy you think you are, and how good you think you are, and how deserving you think you are. But here's the beautiful truth. As no one can earn God's grace, there is no one so far removed from God's grace that he cannot save them. So here's some points of application for us this morning. Salvation is not dependent upon you, and that should be the greatest and the best news that you have heard all day. Because if salvation was dependent upon you, you'd never get it. And if you could lose your salvation, you'd lose it a moment after you had it. Salvation is not dependent upon you. It is dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ, the perfect work of Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and did everything in his life that God the Father commanded and expected him to do. And then in death, he took upon himself the sin of those who believe in him, and God put his wrath on his own son and crushed his son on your behalf so that when you would respond in faith, you would be forgiven because your sin is paid for. 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The sinner. As Paul said, the chief of sinners. Secondly, salvation comes to those who seem most unworthy of it. And that's just a continuation of the best news you'll ever hear. You're not worthy of God's grace. If you were worthy of grace, it wouldn't be called grace. It would be called a wage. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. I am most certainly not worthy, and I know that. That's why it's grace. And so God has granted us grace to those who are unworthy of salvation. By the way, who does God have to work with except those who are most unworthy? The only one worthy was His Son who went to the cross to secure salvation for all of us. And so we are the ones who put value on sinful acts. So we have to be careful because we think a murderer is someone who is worse than those who hold a grudge. We think a thief is worse than those who gossip. Be careful. Those who hold a grudge can have inward hatred of their brother and in God's eyes they are guilty of murdering their brother. A gossip steals the reputation of another and therefore is a thief. We have to recognize that none of us is worthy. And the good news is this. None of us is worthy, but all of us can be saved. All of us can be saved through the, through the gospel of Christ, and therefore we proclaim it to everyone. Finally, humility is strength when we recognize that it is God who is the one who exalts and the one who humbles. There is a book that I read almost every year. It is a simple title, Humility, by C.J. Mahaney. I recommend this book to all of you. It is a good discipline to read every year. Because the reality is, we all have pride. Every one of us. And if we're not on the lookout for it, pride is winning the battle. That book is helpful. But I want to remind you that when we seek to humble ourselves, we don't expect God to exalt us. <laughs> that's His business. If He keeps you low until glory, that's His business. Your business is humble yourselves before the Almighty King. He may not exalt you until glory. He may not exalt you until tomorrow or the next year or never. Until glory. That's his business. Don't make it yours. Our business. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that you do not waste the suffering of your children. That when we are humbled and we wait for you to exalt us, that in that waiting, you are faithful, you are kind, you are just, you are right, you are good, and you are loving. And so, Father, for those who are here this morning who are waiting, would you give them an eternal perspective that life is a vapor? 
and it is not to be compared to glory, which we cannot comprehend in this moment. And for those who in this moment are not in that afflicted state, would you give them the conviction to humble themselves? That they would not be cast down upon the rocks. And Father, for those who are in the place of this proud Pharisee who thinks, maybe would never say out loud, but thinks inwardly, they are righteous before you because of their own acts of righteousness, would you bring conviction upon their hearts? May none of us leave this morning without doing business with you. If we must, let us come forth, ask for prayer from the saints, confess the sin that we have before you, and seek the righteousness of Christ. That we would humble ourselves and wait for you to exalt us whenever that day may be. In Christ I pray.